0: How many of you like roller coasters? All right. How many of you dislike roller coasters? All right. Uh, I'm the kind of person that I, I like roller coasters. I really liked them when I was younger, but as I've gotten older, I feel like roller coasters like me less and less. They they wear on me. And so when we take our kids to Holiday World, I can ride some roller coasters, but I have to spread them out through the day so that I'm not useless. When I was a kid or when I was a teenager, I could go and I'd ride the same roller coaster. We would go to this place called King's Dominion. It's near Virginia. We would, Sometimes we'd go on a day. There was hardly anybody there. And they had this wooden roller coaster called the Rebel Yell. And if there was nobody in line, you could ride it again. You didn't have to get off. And I remember riding the Rebel Yell six times in a row one time. And just thinking about that now makes my stomach turn in knots. The Rebel Yell was one of those classic wooden coasters that was just hill and valley, hill and valley, it would take you up as is, is the highest point and then drop you, and every time you feel your stomach flip. And what I've realized through this pandemic is that ministry is a lot like a roller coaster. Hills and valleys, ups and downs. In my later years, now that I, I take a little bit of a beating when I ride a roller coaster. Whenever I ride a wooden roller coaster at Holiday World, I always try to brace myself to try to, to minimize the shaking so that I'm less likely to get a head, headache when I get off. I'm, you know, you're surrounded by young people. I've got their hands in the air, you know, which is a classic roller coaster posture, but i am got my hands gripped to the armrest in front of me, trying to push myself against the seat so I don't shake around. And I've kind of wondered if maybe that's actually making it worse. Because of all that tensing and trying to fight against the momentum of the roller coaster, I'm actually making it harder on myself. I feel like for the last several years, I've also been fighting against the momentum of our culture. That as the church goes on this roller coaster ride of our culture becoming post-Christian, that we've done everything we can to fight against that. And here at our church, we've been incredibly blessed that over the last 10 years, where while many churches have seen a major decline in attendance, we've experienced growth and we've reached new people. Right before the pandemic started, one week before we had to shut down having our in-person gatherings, I went to Nashville to our headquarters to be a part of a coaching team. They'd invited pastors that they wanted to help coach other churches. Because what we've experienced here is is not the trend. It's not normal. We've been blessed to fight against the trend that's taking place across our country. This week, I will go back to Nashville. We will hold our denomination's annual meeting. And instead of it being in Oklahoma City and thousands of people gathering, there are going to be 50 of us that gather in Nashville to conduct the business. And part of that, going to the National every year, is our state, our Free World Baptist Association, reports how many churches there are so that we can pay our dues. And as the, the treasurer of the Indiana State Association of Free Will Baptists, that's my responsibility. And this year I'll report that there are 17 churches in our movement in the state of Indiana. And when I moved here 15 years ago, there were 26 So it breaks my heart to think about going to this national reporting 17 churches. We've lost more than a third. And I think if you were to ask the average person what church attendance has been like through history, probably most of us have this idea that 500 years ago everybody went to church. And over the years, attendance and involvement in church has just slowly declined, and now we are down at this point. And the pandemic has caused an even steeper drop at the bottom. But the truth of the matter is, that it's not been this slow and steady decline. But rather, if you look back in church history, what you see is it's more like a roller coaster ride. It's mountains and valleys. Times where God works in a powerful way and people respond to the gospel and there's this this momentum that picks up in the church and the church expands and God is doing powerful things and then there becomes this falling away. And believers become apathetic. And churches become ineffective. And movements begin to dwindle. And it enters into a valley time. But then a revival will happen. A great awakening will occur. A new move of God. God will do a new thing. And once again, the attendance, the movement, the effectiveness, the momentum will pick up. And there will be a new peak, a new mountain. Now, when you ride a roller coaster, all of the peaks after the first one have to be lower than the first one. Because you're slowly losing momentum as you go. But when you look at church history, what has happened is... The peaks have gotten higher and higher. The church has grown more and more. And while there have been times of decline, when there is a response to that decline in revival or awakening, it reaches a higher summit than the previous summit. And I think that what we are experiencing right now is that we are in the bottom of one of those valleys. I hope it's the bottom. That we've experienced this decline over decades But I want you to see that that means that right now, we are poised for a new awakening. We are poised for renewal. We are poised for God to do this powerful work. Because we're in another one of those valleys. Now, it might be kind of hard for you to imagine that that when the church is effective and the movement, if things are really moving, that that would be a point where things would start to fall off. But when we look at scripture, we see examples of this all over the place. I think the best example of this is in Exodus. In Exodus, in the chapters in, like the tw- in around 20, God has done a powerful work for the Egyptians. He has brought them out of bondage in Egypt. He has rescued them through the Red Sea. They come through the other side of the Red Sea, rescued from their captors, and they worship God and give him praise. They sing, kind of like we just sang. And then they go and they camp at the, bat, the base of Mount Sinai. And there Moses goes and he meets with God in the mountain and brings them back word of the things that God has been saying to them. And God offers them this covenant, this promise that they can enter into with him. And he, he says, if you will follow me and you will keep these commands, I will protect you and I will lead you into this land of promise. And the people say, and I quote, we will obey these things forever. And Moses must have felt really great. The things are are going well. We We have escaped Egypt. We have made it through the Red Sea. The people have committed to follow God. And then Moses goes into the mountain again, this time for 40 days. And Exodus tells us that when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down, in other words, it went on longer than they were expecting, that they came to Aaron and they asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. Now, when they were in Egypt, the people of Egypt, the pagan people of Egypt, worshipped a bull. Now they're in the desert and they feel like God has abandoned them because Moses has been gone longer than they were expecting. And so they ask Aaron to make a calf. Apparently they didn't feel like they were powerful enough or strong enough to be worshipping a bull. So they get the child of the bull, the calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain... A month after he's just had this powerful meeting with the people, when they've said, we will obey God forever. He comes down from the mountain and he finds them partying and worshiping this idol. And Moses throws the Ten Commandments down. Moses is furious. Can I be honest with you? I've had like some Ten Commandment throwing moments over the last few months. I've had some very frustrating moments where it's like, because the pandemic went on longer than we expected, people have just walked away. Because this crisis has been something that we weren't looking toward, we didn't have on our radar, because it's something that has thrown us for a loop, it has been enough for some people to simply disengage completely from church. As I've mentioned to you, Barna has recently reported that one in three Practicing evangelicals has not engaged with their church in four weeks, whether in person or online. I think we're experiencing the bottom of the valley. at least I hope it's the bottom of the valley. The people of Israel, they... They make their way through the desert. And if you read the story of them making their way to the promised land, it's just time and time and time again of them making this commitment to God and saying, God is the one who's provided for us. God is the one who's protected us. We will worship him forever. We will follow you forever, Moses. And then something happens that they don't like and they're ready to reject God and kill Moses. And this roller coaster ride happens. In the span of one generation in the desert. The Israelites get into their promised land. They establish their nation. God tells them, listen, if you will follow me, I will protect you. I will provide for you. And they are committed to him. But then we immediately begin to see this decline. Moses would tell the people that when you walk with your children, when you sit with down with them at the table, when you put them to bed at night, you need to be speaking of scripture because they will forget. There will come this time that there is the downward trend of commitment to God. So the roller coaster ride continues. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we are at another moment of Israel and their commitment and passion for God being at a peak. Solomon has built the temple that his father wanted to build but couldn't. Solomon is leading the people of Israel into their greatest time of prosperity and power. And look in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, he's praying a dedicatory prayer over the temple that he's just built. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. The presence of the Lord was so powerful and so potent within the temple they could not enter. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped, praised the Lord, saying, He is good, His mercy endures forever. It's this powerful moment of dedicating the temple, God's presence falls in the temple as fire. His presence fills the temple to the place where the priests can't even walk into it. All of the people seeing this, they bow down on their faces and praise God. And then God speaks to Solomon. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. All good, right? Like things are going great. But verse 13 makes a turn. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Or command locusts to devour the land. Or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Everything's great, but God comes to Solomon and gives him the recipe for when things aren't great. Because the Lord knows that this pattern that he's had with the people of Israel is going to continue. That again and again there are going to be these moments where they need to turn back from their wickedness and be renewed. That there would be these moments where they came off of the peak, the summit, the mountaintop, and they would enter into the valley. When things would go from being great to the people becoming apathetic and turning away from God and forgetting God. And so even in this moment when everything is amazing, when God has just fallen upon the temple, God comes to Solomon and he says, when this happens in the future, here's what needs to happen. The temple needs to be a site where the people can seek me out and humble themselves. And I want you to focus in on, on three words in those two verses, verses 13 and 14. I want you to notice the first word of verse 13, when... The first word of verse 14, if, and then about halfway through verse 14, then. When, if, and then. Now, in the New King James that I, I'm reading to you, the word at the beginning of verse 13 is when. In the King James, it's if. If. For some reason, in the the New King James translation, they felt like the, 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 the word when was more appropriate than the hypothetical if. And if we went with if at verse 13, we all know that this is not a hypothetical. It might have been a hypothetical, but it's definitely come to pass. Because what that verse says is, if I shut up heaven and it doesn't rain, or I send locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people. Now, in an agricultural society, the worst things that could happen would be it wouldn't rain so your crops didn't grow, or the locusts would come and they would eat up all your crops. In an agricultural society, this is the economy. Now We talk about the economy today. We talk about stocks and we talk about markets and we talk about unemployment. That would have been comparable for them. When there's no rain, your crops don't grow. When locusts come and devour everything, you have nothing to eat. When there is famine, when there is pestilence, pestilence is pandemic. I heard recently that in China, the, the word for pandemic in, in, in Chinese is so similar to the word here that when it's translated into Chinese, that you get pandemic. And there are people that when they're Googling pandemic in Chinese, they're finding this passage of scripture. And so what God says to Solomon is this when or if these things happen, and these things have happened, we are in a time. That these things have happened. But more importantly than, than that, not raining, more importantly than locusts, more important than pestilence, more important than the economy or unemployment numbers, more important than any of that, I want you to notice what he says first. He says, when I shut up heaven. And he's specifically talking about the rains. But he's giving us this image of the rains coming from heaven and it being shut off. God hasn't stopped the rains here. It's rained a lot, hasn't it? But it feels like to me that heaven is shut. We don't need the rain to fall, but we need the rain to fall. We don't need our crops and our gardens to be watered, but we need the spirits to fall. We need heaven to open up. We need God to come and meet with us and move in a powerful way. Have you ever tried to help someone? move their car when it's broke down. And you know, at the beginning, it's just really hard to get it moving. There's there's no momentum. But it, once you get it moving, you can really get it moving. It can actually get dangerous. I remember one time I was helping this guy push his car, and it was just like, man, we cannot get this thing started. It won't move. If we can just get over this hump, then we'll have some momentum, and we'll be... But we couldn't. You know why? Because the emergency brake was on. (laughs) Once that was taken off, once that was released, it was a whole lot easier to build that momentum... And we are working so hard to reach our community. We're working so hard to to reach out, to preach the gospel. But it's like the emergency brake is on. It's like heaven is shut up. It's like the spirit is not moving with us. We need God to come and do the work. We need him. A reading about old revivals people that would be coming to these services when the awakening was happening and they wouldn't even have turned down the street that the church was on but they were headed there and they would feel this powerful conviction. And by the time they got to the door of the church they would plead with the pastor to lead them to Christ because they feared that they might die or they might meet God, that the rapture might happen, that judgment might come before the service got started. That feels very opposite to what we experience today. feels like we've got to pull teeth. We've got to overcome this, this, this negative momentum. We've got to overcome this, this negative turn in our culture. We've got to overcome prejudice, prejudices in people's minds. We've got to overcome this skepticism. But if the Spirit comes, the winds will be at our back. The winds will fill ourselves and we will not have to overcome that. Because the Spirit is on the move. Heaven has shut. So when, if, and then. When. We are definitely in that when time. That moment has come. So then we need to follow what verse 14 says. Now verse 14 is quoted a lot. It's quoted a lot by people who want to see revival come and it's used as a prescription for revival. But most often we don't hear about verse 13 that those are the things that come first. But it's come and it's here so we can apply verse 14. We're ready for it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What are the actions that we're called to? We're called to humility. We're called to repentance. We're called to contending in prayer. That's what we're called to do. And I feel like each one of those steps is so very important that we're going to look at each of them in turn over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about being humble. We're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about contending in prayer. But I want you to see that it's when, if, and this is the hypothetical. This is the contingency. This is the thing that that it all hinges on. God wants to move. God wants to open up heaven. God wants to bring his spirit upon us. But we must be open to that working of the spirit. We must recognize our need. We must be humbled to the fact that we are desperate for it, that we pray for it, that we call for it. But if that hypothetical comes to pass, when all of these other things have happened, then, then, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. How many of you would agree with me that our our land needs healing? How many would you agree with me that, that our culture needs healing? How many of you would you agree with me that Chandler needs healing? We need healing. And while he's gone into great detail about pestilence and locusts and famine, he just simply says, I will heal their land. And whatever it is that ills us... ...whatever it is that is broken in us... ...whatever it is that is politically broken... ...whatever it is that is physically broken... ...whatever it is broken... ...God will move in our midst... ...and He will bring that restoration. He will heal our land. But more importantly... ...forgive their sins. And what we see happening again and again and again... ...throughout Israel's history... Is that they would wander away from God, and then there would rise up this movement of people who were faithful to the Lord. They would turn back to Him, they would repent of their sins, and God would forgive and move in their midst again. And the momentum of the nation would change. I played basketball in high school. If you've ever watched a basketball game, you've probably seen how momentum in a basketball game can swing. Something happens and the momentum shifts to the other team and it's like that team can't miss. All of their shots go in, they're getting steals. When I was in high school, I had a friend, James, he he sat the bench, but he was intentionally put on the bench and brought in the game when there needed to be a moment for the momentum to change. Because whenever James came into the game, something was going to happen. And he was going to get a steal, he was going to tackle, something was going to happen. And there would be this moment that the momentum would shift and things would change. And right now, we we need the momentum to shift. We need it to change. When you're riding a roller coaster, you've crested the hill and you come down to the very bottom... That's actually the time that you have the most speed and you have the most momentum. And all you need is for the track to turn up and carry you up again. That's what we need. We need a change. We need there to be something different. You know, thinking on this week, I realized that that's what Jesus did. When Jesus arrived, there had been 400 years of silence. God had not spoken through his prophets. The temple priests had become corrupt. They were stuck in religiosity. The nation had fallen under captivity under the Romans. But then Jesus comes and he spends three years gathering this group of people. And then after his crucifixion and resurrection and then ascension, this group of 120 people, they gather in prayer in the upper room. And God works through that, that movement, that group, that small group of people who humbled themselves, who gathered together, prayed in that room, knelt on their knees, confessed their sins, and God brought revival through them. And I believe that he wants to do it again. And I believe that we are so very primed for it in this moment. And that just as Jesus showing up in Judea, in Jerusalem, in those days, when he shows up in us, when he shows up in our midst, when he shows up in our gatherings, everything can change. Would you pray with me? Father, it feels as though we have been on a roller coaster ride. And Lord, it feels like we are in a valley. And Lord, we need you to change things. So, Lord, we come before you and we humble ourselves, we confess our sins. We beg for you to come and meet with us. Lord, we plead that you would move in our midst. Lord, we recognize that it starts with your people. It must begin with us. Lord, I pray that in this moment we would sense your presence. We would sense your grace. We would sense your desire to bring about this great great renewal in your church and in the world. And we're asking that you start here with us. And Lord, we are so thankful that even in the midst of this downturn, even in the midst of this crisis, even in the middle of this valley, we still experience your presence and your grace and your love. Move among us, God. We need you. We are nothing without We recognize this in the name of Jesus. Amen.